the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. We can help your company and your employees look forward to tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Good day. Welcome to the Irish Times business podcast. I'm Arthur Beasley. I'm joined today by Kieran Hancock, finance correspondent in the newspaper, and by Jim Power, economist. Today we're discussing the bank inquiry and also the debate, the growing debate, around the possibility that Britain might leave the European Union. But first to the banking inquiry. Kieran Hancock, every day we see you leave the office for Leinster House and it's many, many hours, hours past before, before you return uh, <laughs> while the banking inquiry proceeds with these very, very long hearings and which have been going on now for quite some time. And it all begs the question really as to whether... A, the inquiry is working. B, what exactly we know now that we didn't know at the outset of the process mm. and what remains to be uncovered. Yeah. Well, it's a good question as to whether the inquiry is actually um, achieving anything at the minute. They began the nexus phase of the inquiry, which is really the meat and drink, where, they're try- where they are bringing in witnesses. Um, they can compel witnesses to come in and give evidence about events that led up to the crash, uh, events on the night of the bank guarantee, and some actions that were taken post um, the, the, the guarantee in September 2008. So we've seen uh, a raft of bankers and, and auditors mostly to date, uh, and tomorrow we're going to see, uh, this is Thursday, we're going to see John Hurley, former governor of the Central Bank, come in. We'll have Patrick Neary, the former financial regulator, in then next week. And uh, later on, we'll have a, a stream of former politicians and policymakers, if you like, uh, including the former Taoiseach, Brian Cowan, uh, whom we've learned was was very much driving the process on the night of the guarantee uh, September 29th, 2008, a guarantee that put us on the hook for 440 billion euros worth of liabilities, potentially. Only for 440 Only billion. Only indeed. And uh, we will hear from a, you know, a Taoiseach Enda Kenny, who was a, a leader in opposition at the time, from former Taoiseach Bertie Ahern, former Thornish, Mary Harney, etc. And today, the inquiry is writing to a raft of people at Anglo-Irish Bank, Irish Nationwide and Irish Life and Permanent, uh, senior executives there, including Michael Fingleton, who is the boss at Irish Nationwide, uh, Sean Fitzpatrick, uh, the former chairman of Anglo-Irish Bank, David Drum, former head of uh, Anglo-Irish Bank, um, Dennis Casey, the former head, chief executive of Irish Life and Permanent. There was a question mark over whether the, the inquiry would actually get to these people or not, because there's litigation in train uh, between the state and and these people and the, the various entities they, they represented. Uh, I won't bore you with the details. There's a lot of cases there, but the DPP had basically warned the inquiry off calling witnesses and asking them any questions that might in any way relate to those legal cases for fear that they might, uh, you know, they might cause a problem for the legal cases. Um, and also the legal cases, you know, the witnesses could, uh, in effect, say to the inquiry, look, because we're before the courts uh, on, char- on X, Y and Z charge, uh, we don't feel that we can come before the inquiry and give evidence in relation to the matters that led to the financial crash. And you, you then get into a whole debate, well, do we go the court order route to try and compel them to appear? And then that could be challenged and so on and so forth. And that could be a very lengthy process. This really all has to be tied up by November. They want the findings, the report out in November. 
the hearings will stop in September. They'll then take a period of time to compile the report and they want to have it published by the end of November. As you know, we could have a, a general election at any stage now up until um, next spring. And one theory is that the government might decide after the budget to go early and go in November if there's a feel-good factor around. So it's imperative that the inquiry really uh, continues at a fair old clip with the work um, that, that, that they're doing and that they produce this report by November. Now, one of the criticisms might be that having started their inquiries back in December, that they spent far too long. They spent effectively three months on the so-called context phase where they bought, brought people in to basically give the context to uh, the events that led to the financial crash, that really we should have got to the meet and drink uh, a lot sooner than this. Now, the, the, I mean, the, the concern when you mentioned the notion of, of a general election, the concern is that the inquiry essentially lapses with this current Oroctus. So they really have to get the business wrapped up. Otherwise, all of the work is lost and the, and the, entire, and the inquiry folds. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It'll, it'll all have been for naught. Um, similarly, if somebody takes a, a legal challenge and ties the inquiry up uh, in a legal process for you know, a long period, it could all be for naught. So they have to tread very carefully. But I think they felt having dodged the issue of whether they should call executives who were with Anglo Nationwide and Irish Life and Permanent, having dodged it for a couple of months, I think they felt they really had to call these witnesses and just roll the dice and see how it goes. Well, they can call them, but we don't know whether the people are actually going to come and whether they will challenge or whether they will say that because of other matters such as litigation, they cannot, in fact. Well, let's start with David Drum. He's living outside the jurisdiction. He's living in the United States. He's wanted uh, by the Irish authorities here for questioning on various matters to do with his uh, stewardship of Anglo-Irish Bank. And he's shown no inclination to come home to answer those questions. So I can't imagine that he's going to come home uh, to give evidence to the inquiry. Uh, Sean Fitzpatrick, I think, has three cases or had three cases pending against him. One of them has already gone, the Anglo trial um, last year. That's already been and gone. There's, there's, there's one currently in train and, and there's another one down the tracks. So he could probably justifiably say, listen, I, I can't come for various legal reasons. Dennis Casey has also got a legal case pending against him. Um, so, you know, there are people who probably, uh, and Michael Fingleton has shown no desire to uh, appear before any committee to give his version of events um, in relation to his stewardship of Irish Nationwide or its well, role. Very, well, very little has been, little to, or nothing has been heard from him in, in, in public at Little all. or nothing. I mean, David Murphy of RT famously had that, uh, uh, that brief interview on the hoof, literally at Dublin Airport when he... He, uh, he captured him coming off a plane and uh, went running after him, asking him if he had anything to say to the Irish public, effectively. But that was a very brief encounter. So we really have heard nothing from Michael Fingleton. You're right. Um, and in essence, if we don't hear from these people, because they were major players in, in the crash, particularly Fitzpatrick, Drum and Fingleton, if we don't hear from them, we're going to have an incomplete picture. There's no doubt about that. And of course, the late Brian Lenhan sadly he's passed away and, and we won't get his version of events. Uh, he was the Minister for Finance at the time and, and he was involved in a lot of those crucial decisions that were made. So what we'll have is we'll, we will have evidence from the bankers, we'll have evidence from a number of uh, senior policymakers, and we will have evidence from uh, Brian Cowan and a couple of the senior officials in the Department of Finance. Jim Power, you uh, haven't been spending your days in the bowels of uh, LH2000 in, in Leinster House, uh, but uh, you, at, at one point in your career, did indeed work for a, a large Irish bank. Uh, you were a very keen and close observer of all that happened in our economy, in the, both from uh, when we went from boom to crash and now into recovery. 
Um, as you stand back from it, do you feel that you know more or that the understanding is greater at this point based on what we've already heard in the inquiry? Is the inquiry working? Well, thankfully, Arthur, I don't have to endure what Kieran has to endure on a daily basis. Um, I, I was very cynical about the whole process from the very beginning because I felt it was always going to be an opportunity for uh, the political members of the committee to showboat and well, they're all you political. Know, the, the well, they're all political, absolutely. Yeah. Just, just to showboat and to ask people they don't like awkward questions and make them f- feel bad about themselves and so on. Um, I was never convinced it was going to achieve very much in giving us a better understanding of what actually happened. And to date, I feel vindicated in that view. Really? I mean, to me, it's, it's, it's very simple. Um, but per- perhaps back in 2007, I didn't quite recognise it at the time. But the key problems for me were, number one, you know, we joined the single European currency back in 99. We inherited an interest rate environment that was totally and ridiculously inappropriate for what was a booming Irish economy at the time. Um, We got foreign banks coming into the Irish market to provide credit. Um, The central bank didn't regulate the system at all. And... um, and I suppose the other big problem is that our political elite had no understanding whatsoever about how fiscal policy should be used in a monetary union. And we had this very pro-cyclical monetary and fiscal policy um, that inevitably was going to blow the economy into the stratosphere. And I suppose if you superimpose on top of that, and I suppose this goes back to my experience of banking, which thankfully I got out of in 2000, banks are incapable, or bankers are incapable of behaving prudently. Um, They will just lend to wherever the fashionable area of the economy is at that particular point in time. You know, there was a time in the 90s they were bugging money out to the hotel sector. Then property sector took over in the 2000s. And I, I, I assume that the next banking bubble is going to revolve around agriculture and particularly the investment in the dairy sector. Mm. So uh, if, if you superimpose all of that, there are no surprises. And I don't think the banking inquiry is going to tell us very much other than people I, misbehaved. I think, James, I think Jim's point about foreign banks is interesting, actually, because uh, nobody from Bank of Scotland, Ireland, for example, has been called before this inquiry. And there's no doubt that the pricing actions that Bank of Ireland, Scotland, uh, took in the boom years in Ireland had an effect on the behaviour of the domestic Irish banks. They very much upset the apple cart. They priced products in a way that forced the Irish banks, uh, the likes of AIB and Mac and so on, to take decisions that they really weren't comfortable with and to take decisions that they wouldn't have previously taken, risky decisions, to start lending for a lot of development uh, property, etc. And to start uh, giving people loans at rates that they wouldn't otherwise normally have done and yet nobody from Bank of Scotland Ireland has been called before this inquiry. Yeah, nobody from Rabobank yeah. either who own uh, ACC. And ACC similarly took a lot of pricing it's, decisions. It's, it's, it's interesting. When Bank of Scotland entered the Irish mortgage market back in 1998-99, um, it, it was heralded as a great day for the Irish mortgage holder. And almost overnight, mortgage rates fell by about 2% on average. And it was great for people who were borrowing at the time. But in terms of the impact it had on an economy that was already growing very strongly, it turned out to be absolutely disastrous. And, well, well, it could be argued that Bank of Scotland Ireland brought the tracker rate as well, which yes. has been disastrous for yes. domestic Irish banks. But and isn't it interesting that we're having this very com- conversation in, in in the middle of a week in which the uh, present Minister for Finance is calling, is speaking with each of the individual banks in respect of their standard variable rate loans. But to get back to the banking inquiry, Jim, right? You are standing from the outside. Have there been any moments in the last uh, number of months since the inquiry started in which you went? Oh, do you know what? 
that was something I didn't know about or that casts a new light on it or that's interesting or, you know, have we, what have been the standout well, moments, just, if any? The standout moment for me was John Fitzgerald and ESRI. Um, uh, I'm a huge admirer of John Fitzgerald, always have been and I remain so. And I felt that he did himself a serious disservice. Um, I thought he was way too critical of his own economic analysis over the years. I mean, I think John, going back a long time, was sending out a lot of warnings about things that were wrong in the Irish economy. Um, Like a lot of the rest of us, um, he didn't quite figure that the bubble was about to burst when it did burst. Um, But there's a lot of people going around saying, in hindsight, they saw it all, but that's not the case either. But to me, that was the standout moment. Um, And I thought John was just so honest about his role, Um, a hell of a lot more honest than I've seen anybody else in the banking inquiry. So he's gone way up in my estimation as as a result of that. Um, The the other thing is that I, I don't really believe a lot of what I'm hearing in the inquiry because we have direct contradictions we do between have, different people. We, we definitely do have contradictory evidence from the two yeah. main banks, AIB and Bank of Ireland, in relation to what happened in government buildings on the night of the guarantee. And we have contradictions a- even as between bankers from individual institutions. Well, that's yes. right, yeah. I mean, if you look at AIB, AIB have made it very clear, Eugene Shee, the former chief executive, and Dermot Leeson, the former chairman, made it very clear that when they left government buildings, it was their view that there would be a four-bank uh, guarantee and that Anglo and Nationwide wouldn't be included in it. Anglo and Nationwide basically will be wound up in the coming days. Mm. Bank of Ireland, and they were stunned when the blanket guarantee was announced the following morning. Bank of Ireland have made it very clear at about 2am they were brought into the room and as Bank of Ireland have uh, painted the picture, AIB were with them and they were told by the government what the decision was and the decision was a blanket guarantee and they decided uh, shortly thereafter to go home and get a bit of sleep before the markets opened. Um, now for me the standout moment was actually uh, Brendan McDonough's uh, testimony. Brendan McDonough is currently the Chief Executive of the National Asset Management Agency which as we all know took a whole raft of loans, um, 74 billion worth of, n- nominally uh, worth of loans off the balance sheets of Together the with banks. a very large her cuts which impose yes, very absolutely. large capital requirements on the banks. Absolutely. So, uh, but at the time he was effectively the finance director of the National Treasury Management Agency. This is the agency that manages the national debt on behalf of the state and that also manages our relations with capital markets. Now the blanket guarantee... Say, essentially the, the institution, the body in this town that holds the government's money. Yes, and the government had Brendan McDonough and one of his colleagues, a senior colleague, sitting in the side room the entire night while all of this discussion was taking place, some of it with the bankers, some of, the, some of it with themselves and with their own advisors. And they never knocked on the door and said, Brendan, would you ever come into the room? Uh, there's something we'd like to run by. We'd like to see, we'd like to know your thoughts on how the market might react to a blanket guarantee being issued for the six Irish banks. And everybody in government buildings that night knew that Anglo-Irish Bank was banjaxed. Basically, the government had to ask AIB and Bank of Ireland to give €5 billion each in emergency liquidity within 24, 36 hours to keep the show on the road. Now, both AIB and Bank of Ireland thought, OK, we'll do that. It's short-term funding. You've got to guarantee it. You've got to give it back to us by a certain time. But they were both of the view that Anglo was going to be wound up very, very soon, in, in hopefully in some sort of orderly way. And what we found out was that Brendan McDonough and and a few others were sitting in the side room and they were never called in. And at about 1am, he got a tap on the shoulder to say, by the way, this is the government's decision. And he was called in to give a a sliver of advice to Brian Cowan on how this might affect overseas subsidiaries of the domestic banks. That meeting with Brian Cowan lasted 90 seconds, Hmm. right? And then he left and went home to get a bit of sleep before the capital markets opened at 7am. And he had to to make the calls, basically, to explain what this blanket guarantee was I'd say he hadn't a wink of sleep for weeks after. 
Well, I, I presume not. I presume not. Uh, and the reason he was there was that Michael Summers, uh, who was head of the NTMA at the time, and John Corrigan, who was uh, who was effectively his deputy at the time, they were both out of the country. So he was the most senior NT, NTMA official. Well, can I raise can I raise two two questions there? W- one in relation to Brendan McDonough and and Michael Summers. Is the evidence open to the interpretation that maybe the Taoiseach or the finance minister or someone else in the room where the decision was taken? Might have been on the phone with Michael Summers or John Corrigan, who were no, not around. No, the, no the, suggestion. There's not been no suggestion of that. So uh, sense now, Michael Summers has been called, so we will get yes. his version of events. And indeed, Brian Cowan has been called, so we will get his version of events. But He's right now, the, the sense is that the, the, the NTMA was completely cut out of the decision. It's very important. Body. Absolutely, and absolutely. you had all of these kind of well-paid investment bankers f- floating around, who essentially were were on the meter, but who were not servants of the state in. The truest sense. That's right, yeah. And Patrick Conahan, who's now the governor of the central bank, he wasn't at the time, but he made the point that, you know, Merrill Lynch was one of the uh, advisors and he said, oh, yeah, there were a few people there from, from Merrill Lynch, all right. But he said, you know, just because everybody thinks, well, we had Merrill Lynch in the room, sure, look, aren't they the best advisors in town? He said, look, you know, these are three people who are well down the food chain at Merrill Lynch. Don't think that you had the three most senior people or the three brightest people from Merrill Lynch sitting in the room advising the government. You had three people from Merrill Lynch, but there's no, <laughs> there's no guarantee uh, that they were in any way senior. What do you make of that, Jim? It's, it's also interesting... I mean, uh, if, if you look at the collapse of Lehman's um, in the run-up to that... About I mean, 10 days prior. Yeah, the stuff from Hank Paulson would show you that there was a similar level of confusion and uncertainty surrounding um, the future of one of the biggest banks in one of the most sophisticated financial and economic systems in the world. So what happened here wasn't unique. But I think you raised an important point because when people do discuss the bank guarantee flawed as it was yeah. and... Uh, very drastic for every single person in this country. Um, it is often overlooked that the the decision was made in the full thrust of absolute crisis in the global financial it, system. It was total carnage on on the Monday evening. The um, the, the, the Congress in the United States had rejected the tarp. Um, the tarp, ab- yep. absolutely, and, and that really was the catalyst for the whole global financial system, including our system, to go into a, ter- a serious tailspin. But I, I made a point at the beginning of this podcast about the flawed nature of EMU and what happened on the night of the guarantee. And Lars Frizzell from the Central Bank of Ireland in a speech in Sweden this week has, has spoken about the mistake that was made with the bank guarantee. But what that shows you is that EMU was a totally flawed construct from day one because they had no mechanism in place to deal with bank resolution. And we were, unfortunately, the first country to be thrown into the maelstrom. We hadn't a clue how to deal with it. Well, Nobody yeah. in Europe was prepared to lend us any help and because in of terms the crisis, of dealing with we it. Now, we now have a, a, pan, uh, a pan-European exactly. regulation system. But, but it, it, but it, and it's also the case that come <clears throat> the time of the guarantee that uh, the European Central Bank had been providing emergency liquidity right around the Eurozone for more than a year. Emergency liquidity operations to the European Central Bank started somewhere around July or August of 7, just in advance of the Northern Rock collapse of Britain. Yes, and and, and yet um, nobody in Europe was prepared to come together and agree a bank resolution mechanism. So Ireland was hung out to dry. But I suppose another... Interesting point um, about the bank guarantee. I mean, if depositors in Anglo had been burned, for example, um, 
what would the implications of that have been? Because there's a lot of depositors out there. There was a lot of pension money and so on tied up in Anglo-Irish Bank. Uh, the ramifications of that would have been quite serious as well. So I, I, I think and this is what I suppose annoys me a little bit about the, the whole banking inquiry. It's very easy at this construct to look back and point out all the mistakes we made. But if you're in the middle of a dramatic storm, you have no idea what the consequences of your actions yeah. will be. Kieran, from what you're hearing, do you, do you sense that in the questioning, that in the, in the if, if you like, in the narrative thrust of the inquiry, do you sense that there is a, a, a wide-angle view being taken? Or are we, are we getting lost in the weeds, if you like, of individual decisions and all of that? I think it varies really with the witnesses. I think in some cases we have got lost in the weeds. I think uh, they've, they've been more focused uh, with, with some witnesses than with others. I, I think they have, to be fair to them, they've worked pretty much as a team uh, and they've tried to ask different questions or to come at the questioning from a different angle uh, rather than just repeating each other. And that's that's a flaw of the Oireachtas committee system across the board is that you get a lot of repetition as each party tries to point score on a certain uh, point. Now, we haven't had any of the politicians in, so maybe the point scoring will start when the likes of Brian Cowan or Enda Kenny or others come in and, and you know people from other parties uh, seek to score points off them, which might play well with the electors in the run-up to an election. Um, but one of the other uh, things that I, I think we really have to tease out, if you like, is the government, it seems to me from uh, the Anglo trial last year, it seems to me that the government had no concerns or felt uh, that it was no, what was going on in Anglo-Irish Bank, for example, uh, in the run-up to September 2008. And don't forget, there was a crash in Anglo's share price on St. Patrick's Day back in March 2008. And it was in... The, I remember as well. Uh, to quote your phrase from earlier, it was in the weeds uh, uh, quite a lot. And there were a lot of rumours flying around about us, but from uh, the Anglo trial, it would seem that the government felt it was none of its business uh, at the time. And, you know, they were kind of keeping a watching brief, but they didn't feel uh, that, that the need to intervene and they didn't feel the need to ask questions about it. And we really need to find out why that was, why and why the regulators um, didn't ask more questions, and why more questions weren't asked of nationwide yeah, and, and and other institutions at that time. And we also know, sorry, just in the run up to the the night of the guarantee, um, the central bank was going around asking AIB and Bank of Ireland if, uh, if for example, they would be interested in taking over Irish Life and Permanent. Now, Irish Life and Permanent was in a much be- better uh, state, if you like, than either Anglo or Irish nationwide as we subsequently found out. So there are all of these things going on uh, behind the, in the background and going on for some time and before the night of the guarantee. So I accept um, Jim's point that what happened on the night of the guarantee, there was total panic and, and probably bad decisions were made, but they were made in the heat of the moment. Um, you know, th- we had the global financial crash as a, as a backdrop. But there were events taking place earlier in that year which mm. led us to that point, which just seemed to have been missed completely by regulators and the government. Yeah. And indeed in the previous year, because it is it is the case that even before the famous St. Patrick's Day massacre on the shares of Anglo-Irish Bank in 2008, it was already the case that the shares of all of the Irish banks were in sharp and indeed precipitous decline. Yeah, I I was in um, the United States in San Francisco the weekend, that weekend in 2008 when um, Bear Stearns collapsed. And my whole narrative on Ireland changed dramatically. Uh, I flipped on the Irish economy I had been quite benign about it prior to that. It totally flipped because I saw, you know, the chaos that was created by Bear Stearns and it struck me that we hadn't a clue on this side of the world just how bad the global crisis was becoming and was going to get. And what, what I suppose, uh, look, looking back on it now, how come 
European policymakers didn't actually come to the same realisation and try and prevent the events that have proved so calamitous for Ireland. Well, you'd had, you'd had in, the, in the opening weeks of January of 2008, you'd had an emergency rate cut by the Federal yeah. Reserve yeah. in the US. Uh, I, I, I can't remember the, this, the extent of it, but it was a very large cut, an emergency meeting undertaken in the middle of a public holiday in the United States. Mm. Who, and... Uh, markets were rattled and there was a there was a big shock that week so yeah. it was none of I mean while it's important to to mm. accept that the, the decisions taken in September <coughs> of eight were taking place against a huge intensification of of, of global crisis mm. it was already a year of crisis it even if there indeed. hadn't if you hadn't have had Lehman Brothers the global financial system and the global banking system was in a state of some turmoil. I think in terms of the banking inquiry, I think it is important that we have an inquiry of sorts. <clears throat> now, it is going to cost us money, obviously, not a whole hill of beans compared to various tribunals we've had uh, over the years. But I, I do think it's important that we have uh, an inquiry and we try and piece together what was a monumentous uh, period in the history of the state. And we try and learn some, some lessons from that. I think, you know, one has to hope that it'll prove to be a cathartic exercise. I'm not so sure. But, but Karen, have, <laughs> that, that's the really important thing. Will we learn lessons? Um, the central bank recently um, announced initially and implemented regulations mm. on lending, mortgages. To, on mortgages, OK? Um, and there's been a total outcry from many quarters against it. Um, and, and the central bank eventually washed it down somewhat. I mean, that proves to me we've learned absolutely nothing. I mean, what those regulations are put in place to ensure is that the banks behave in a more prudent way. And yet, when they try to do it, yeah, we're all up in arms. I mean, it has taken far too long for the inquiry uh, to get to get to this point. We should have had it sooner. There's no doubt about that. And of course, the, the central bank probably should have introduced those rules a lot sooner. Of course, than it should. Of course, it should. At Irish Life, we can tell you that 49% of employees in Ireland don't think about tomorrow. They don't have a pension plan. We can help you help them. Because if you're involved in running your company's pension plan, we can administer it for you. With our member-specific investment solutions, online access for employers, trustees and members, and always-on smartphone apps. Just call one of our corporate team on 01704-1845. Visit irishlifecorporatebusiness.ie or contact your pension consultant to find out how we can help your company think of tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information source for Irish Life, September 2014. Kieran, uh, to change the subject, uh, you mentioned the uh, desire maybe for a catharsis in terms of um, what exactly went on in the uh, Irish banking crash. Uh, do you perceive in the British debate around Brexit and this referendum on EU membership that is now going to take place sometime in the next two years that maybe the cathartic moment in terms of British Euroscepticism might indeed lead Britain out of the EU? It's a possibility. I, I think since the Tories won that surprise election victory and got their majority, uh, which nobody had foreseen, I think everybody has started focusing now on the referendum because we weren't... The view was that there would be some sort of coalition arrangement in Britain and a lot of people were of the view 
including some senior ex-Tories, that the Labour Party would probably uh, lead that arrangement and, you know, uh, backed up by the uh, Scottish Nationalists. That didn't come to pass. The Tories have a majority now. Cameron is proceeding with his referendum. We know there'll be a question asked in 2017. We don't know, I suppose, precisely what that question will be or or how uh, it, it will work out. There's some questions over over whether Northern Ireland, Scotland and Wales, etc. might be tied into, uh, you know, an exit vote if, if that were to happen. But anyway, we'll, we'll wait and see. But I think Irish companies and Irish policymakers now have begun to focus uh, their, their minds on this. Gavin Slark, who's the chief executive of Grafton Group, one of the bigger PLCs in Ireland, which is a very big builder merchanting operation in the UK. It owns Woody's DIY and Chadwick's and so <coughs> on in Ireland. Um, he has said that they are going to begin making contingency plans uh, for, for a Brexit. And the Irish Exporters uh, Association has called on the government to start drafting uh, a, a contingency plan in the event of, of Britain leaving um, the European Union on the basis that it's a big national event for us. It's Britain is still our biggest single trading partner. Um, they're very close ties and so so forth. And obviously, there's a lot of uh, uh, foreign direct investment um, swilling through the two economies. So there are various implications there. And they've called for the government to start that process now rather than waiting you know, uh, until closer to the date. And Patrick Coveney, who uh, heads Greencorn, whose brother Simon is a minister in, in the current Irish government, he's... Um, He's kind of indicated that Greencore is looking at this matter as well. I think 40% of their revenues are, are UK-based. Um, Would you be a surprise if they weren't, really, wouldn't it? It would, it would. But then Irish Irish companies and Irish policymakers, you know, we tend to leave things to the last minute. Uh, that tends to be a part of our uh, DNA, uh, if you like. But so, <clears throat> And I have the sense, I could be wrong, but I have the sense that Bank of Ireland, which has a big operation in the UK, uh, might also be turning its attentions to what you know a Brexit might mean for their business, and and I'm sure Ulster Bank, uh, which is part of Royal Bank Scotland, will be will be beginning similar conversations. Jim, from what, what do you mm. know of the the scene out there, are we sufficiently seized of this issue in Dublin? Uh, no, we're not, um, because I suppose it has only really faced us in the eye in the last couple of weeks since the Tory victory. Um, a referendum has to be held held by the end of 2017. Well, we know, the, the significance of the election is that it, it's, yeah, it, there's definitely going it, to be a there's referendum. There's definitely going to be a referendum. Okay, so I suppose if you look at the implications for Ireland, on, on the negative side, um, obviously if Britain leaves the European Union, it won't have the same access to the European Union market. It can't. So from an Irish perspective, and particularly from the perspective of indigenous Irish exporters, and more particularly the food sector, that's going to be a very, very difficult problem. A second big problem for Ireland, obviously, is that we will have a land border with um, a non-member of the European Union. Does that mean we get border controls going up again um, in Northern Ireland? And I suppose the third issue, and I think this is really important one, is that if Britain were to leave, we would lose a major sensible ally around the EU table. I mean, Britain... In terms of our corporate tax Exactly. Brit- Britain has been a friend of Ireland in a lot of EU debates in and recent we have a, times. We have a similar kind of an, an outlook we, in, we, in, in economic we have a course. We, we have a course, absolutely. So then Ireland will be much more exposed to the extravagant policy making of the French and the Germans, for example. So I, I think that, that that's a, charge a big issue. You're making, Jim? Is that a uh, charge? It's not a charge, it's a statement of fact as I see it, Arthur. Um, on, on the positive side, um, there, well, sorry, there's one other negative I could potentially see, and that yes, is yeah. that Britain could become much more aggressive in terms of its corporation tax policy, and there's nothing there to stop them from doing that. So a big competitor for foreign direct investment. On the 
the positive side for Ireland, there's $1.5 trillion worth of foreign direct investment in the United Kingdom. Um, a lot of those companies are in the United Kingdom because it's part of the European Union and the American ones particularly like the fact that they speak English. So there may be some of that foreign direct investment now, that uh, might decide uh, uh, we want to move into another English-speaking uh, having, member having of the EU, which is Ireland. Do- Deutsche Bank has come out in the last couple of days and said that they're going to have to review their uh, their investment of in the mm. City of London in the financial services industry in Britain uh, based on a, a potential Brexit. We're, we're, we're talking in terms of the UK leaving. I don't think we yeah. should necessarily uh, see it that way because I think David Cameron's going to have to, first of all, he's going to go to Brussels and he's going to try and win some concessions. I'm sure he probably will win some. Will it be enough? We'll have to wait. And the Irish should support him on that. Well, I, yeah, they should yes. support him on that. He will to then the extent, have to... To the extent that the interests are aligned. Yes. Uh, when a referendum is held, he will then uh, campaign in favour of it. And you would have to imagine the other major parties will too, including the SNP uh, in Scotland. And then you would have to imagine as well that people in Northern Ireland, Wales and Scotland, in the majority, would support being... Uh, con- continuing to be part of the EU. I mean, agriculture plays a large part in those three economies and uh, obviously they get you know large payments every year from uh, Brussels. So you, you would have to imagine in the majority those three areas. Now, between them, they're probably, what, 10 million of the 60 million yeah. population. So they're not going to decisively swing it, but they will have a, they, they will have a say. And then the irony, of course, uh, for Scotland is that having uh, decided, voted last year to remain within the United Kingdom, one of the key issues uh, that was put to Scottish voters at the time is what happens to your EU members and there was a lot of scaremongering that they would have to leave the EU and they would then have to make a formal uh, bid to uh, enter the EU and they would have to become part of the euro currency and all the uncertainty that goes to that, etc. And that probably played a part in the decision of a, a lot of Scottish voters to vote to stay within the UK. They now face a situation where the UK as a whole is going to have a, a referendum on EU membership and they could find themselves outside the UK based mm. on the decisions taken by people in England. So there's, you know, there's a lot to play for. There we shouldn't a presume... Lot of permutations, a lot of permutations. We shouldn't presume that they're going to exit. Uh, but there is a groundswell, I suppose, of opinion in Britain um, for, for them to, Jim, can to I, get can out I, of yeah. Europe. Can, can I ask you about the... You, you mentioned corporate tax. Mm. And this, this is a, it's a perennial topic and a, you know, it's key to Irish economic policy. But uh, would it not be the case that even in the event of a Brexit where Britain to reduce its corporate tax rate appreciably, that Britain in that case is outside of the EU and one of the main advantages sought, as you've already said yourself, is uh, for American companies in particular, is a nexus into that wider EU market? Yeah, yes, uh, absolutely. But there, there will be at the margins some companies that will be swayed by the corporation tax environment because that's that's how the corporate world works. Um, so, uh, but 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 I think it's going to be at the margin. I wouldn't see it as a massive issue, but it's just another negative in a pot of negatives. There's, I think there's no doubt about that. Britain will become, uh, or sorry, could become at one level a much greater competitor for foreign direct investment. But at another level, as you say, there will be many companies that may decide to exit Britain because they want to maintain a foothold in the European Union. And Ireland offers a decent corporation tax rate. We speak the language. We have a more flexible business and economic model than the rest of Europe. So Ireland could be very attractive. So there are opportunities as well as threats. But I would say on balance, um, it is it would be negative for Ireland. Um, my, my Even gut, more yes, than on balance. I yes, would say. absolutely. My gut instinct would be um, if I was asked to put a bet on it today, I would say Britain will remain within the European Union. 
Um, but you obviously can't take that for granted because a lot of it will come down to politics over the next couple of years. Now, well, you're at liberty to go out and phone Paddy Power at the end of this podcast. But before that, I have to ask you about Danny McCoy's intervention from IBEC. Danny last week, in an interview with the Frankfurter Allgemeine, uh, said that uh, a British exit from Europe, were it to happen, unlikely as it is, could mean that an Irish exit from the EU became inevitable. What did you make of that? Yeah, I, I, I thought it was dramatic stuff. Um, and, and, I, and I suspect, you know, a large part of what Danny was doing, as is a large part of what Deutsche Bank was saying about possibly exiting the city of London or running down its investment in the city of London is to try and make policymakers in Europe wake up to the real threats that are here to the future of the European Union. So this is politics in many ways, I think, at play. It's to try and get minds concentrated in Berlin, particularly to give Britain certain concessions that would help um, keep Britain within the European Union. So megaphone so, diplomacy sca- by, megaphone, by another, by another yes, means. In, indeed, that's how I would interpret it. Um, but sorry, I'm, I, and I've, I'm not for one moment um, denigrating what Danny is saying. I think you know very sensible arguments, <laughs> but I, but I, but I think there's a th- th- there is a motive behind what he's saying, and I think it's a very sensible motive. Um, but I suppose the more interesting point would be, you know, people like the Irish Export Association warning we should be taking contingency plans at this stage and actions to to cope with the eventuality. What can you do exactly? You know, I, I'm not quite sure. Do, do you tell the agri-food sector to move to other markets? Yeah, I suppose uh, it's more around to sort of drafting the pros and cons yeah. and, you know, doing some research and uh, looking at the sectors that might be most impacted by it. And I suppose the IDA has to do a piece of work itself to say, well, let's say Britain did leave um, the European Union. What are the opportunities for us to attract some of the foreign direct investment that's already in Britain, or maybe even some of the British companies that are in Britain, uh, and attracting them over to Ireland as a base into the single market? Now, that could be damaging for the relationship between Ireland and Britain. I don't think Britain would take kindly to Ireland poaching, especially some of its own uh, indigenous companies, to come and set up. We saw the reaction to some of the brass plate stuff that's gone on in Ireland over the past number of years with WPP and others. Um, So that's all very interesting. And also, we've got to think about the... We have a common travel area uh, with Britain. We're outside the Schengen uh, regulation, for example. So we've got to consider what is the implication of Britain being outside the EU, but we're still inside the EU. We still want to have our common travel area with Britain. It makes perfect sense. Can we continue to have that arrangement? I don't know. In terms of the immigration as well, I saw some uh, research recently which suggested that Norway has attracted twice as many immigrants uh, (laughs) being outside the EU as Britain has, for example, being inside the EU. So, uh, leaving the well, EU Norway's doesn't... a very prosperous country. Yeah, very prosperous country. Very, very, uh, Britain's a very prosperous yes. well, that's true, uh, that country true. too. Let's, let's not forget, it's one of the wealthiest countries in the world, certainly in Europe. So, uh, you know, exiting the EU doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to stop immigrants coming into the country. That challenge will, will still be there. And I know UKIP... But it means you get to set your own rules. Of course. And uh, I know UKIP would take a very hard stance, but there is a, hu- a human level to all of this as well. And if people are willing to scramble up uh, into trucks you know, walk from Africa for days and days and days and then scramble into the back of a truck uh, in a ferry in France 
and uh, go across, uh, you know, maybe without having taken water for several days and go across uh, to, to Britain. What do you do? You know, what do you do when they when they land in Britain sort of half starved and looking emaciated, etc.? It's very hard. And maybe with a baby in their arms, it's very hard to just say to those people, sorry, mate, you're heading on the first truck back to Paris or wherever. I think it's, it's also interesting to think back on the debate ahead of the single European currency back in the late 90s. People were arguing that if Britain didn't join, the city of London would be destroyed. Britain would lose its preeminent position in the European economy. It has not happened. Um, The city of London actually has thrived over the last 15 years or so. And, And it's because Britain is a good place in which to do business. You know, it has a flexible business model. Um, Investors like it. And outside of the European Union, Britain would continue to be, well, it would be more flexible, actually. So it could be more attractive for investment. So I I wouldn't believe for one moment that the city of London would be seriously damaged by Brexit. So you're not going to see grass growing up in the square? No, no, absolutely not. Um, there's one f- final point you could make, which is that you know this this is essentially a debate in Britain. It's an internal debate. It's a debate amongst the British people in a referendum scenario. It's a process over which we have no control. No, very very little influence. As as I say, I think what Irish polit- the Irish political system should be doing is supporting Britain in its negotiations um, or its renegotiations of its EU membership with the European Union because, um, you know, the European Union will have to make concessions to Britain to keep Britain in because Europe is a better place with Britain as part of it. So I, I think that's the key role that Irish policymakers can play, supporting Britain in this fight, because it is definitely in our strategic interest to have Britain remain yeah, part and of Carol, the European Union. Agree? We, we do have some key senior people within the administration of the EU uh, in Brussels and, and elsewhere, and I think you know they can play a part in yeah. all of this as well in trying to uh, establish some sort of arrangement that would allow David Cameron go back to his people and say, look, we, we've had concessions on A, B or C. And, uh, you know, it really is in Britain's national interest to remain within the EU. Very good. Kieran Hancock, I thank you. And Jim Power, I thank you. Kieran's going to go back now to the banking inquiry and we'll see him maybe in a few months. And Jim is going to go off and place a bet on whether Britain stays or leaves the EU. My name is Arthur Beasley. This has been the Irish Times business podcast. Thank you for listening.